Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, an associate professor at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Julia Pecarella about her book, The United States of America and the Crime of Aggression, published by Rutledge in 2021. Julia, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me today. It's a real pleasure to be to join you today. Thank you. The uh, pleasure's all mine. And uh, can you start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you can guess from my accent, I'm Italian. <laughs> and, but I've been um, teaching and researching as senior lecturer in law at Middlesex University, London, for the last eight years. Um, I'm also a PhD program leader for law at Middlesex University and currently um, the acting head for the law and politics department over there. I usually teach uh, subjects that are international law related, both at the, at the undergraduate and postgraduate level, and I supervise many PhD students. My research interest is centered on and centered on public international law and international criminal law. And my interest specifically on the crime of aggression dates back to my first master's dissertation in 2008 in Florence, Italy, where I wrote about the negotiation on the definition of the crime of aggression. When I then came um, to London to do my PhD, I realized that I still wanted to research on the crime of aggression, but this time from the perspective of one of the states that are most relevant in in this uh, uh, area, that is the United States of America. And this is because, of course, uh, the U.S. is one of the permanent members of the U.N. Security Council and also one of the key military actors in international relations nowadays. So quite a fundamental state when it comes to the laws governing the use of force. My PhD thesis um, has um, become a book that, as you said, has been published by Routledge uh, in two thousand uh, in twenty twenty one, and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Julia, for the for the background there, and uh, I'm going to ask you a, a sort of tall task question because there's a lot wrapped in it, but. Uh, you know, your book is rich in historical research and analysis. And so can you trace for our listeners the U.S. political and legal views and understandings of aggression as you do in your book? Uh, you know, you start as far back as the Declaration of Independence and all the way up to the Trump administration. Uh, and also, can you tell our listeners briefly about the documents and texts that you analyzed? Yes, sure. I will start from the latter question, actually. So basically, um, when it comes to international law, it is quite important um, to understand what we call the practice of states and the opinion juris of states. So in for both, um, the International Law Commission has clarified on many occasions that it is important to look at um, primary sources, including statement of U.S. presidents or uh, secretary of states, um, or um, statement of um, 
U.S. representatives in this case before and at international conferences, treaties, diplomatic documents, interventions before international tribunals, both as in respondent or prosecuting states and national legislation and case law as well as a residual actually source, basically. So in order to trace back the U.S. position, and practice and opinion juries uh, on the crime of aggression, I needed to look at all these kind of documents, primary sources, um, many. Um, and as you will notice, each chapter basically of my book um, concerns a specific attitude of the US towards aggression. Um, I started from the Declaration of Independence and until basically 1918, so during um, the First World War, the US um, position of aggression was basically inexistent. Um, They they did um, set up important precedents about neutrality and self-defense, for instance, that are very much um, relevant nowadays and related to the uh, use of force, but they did not consider at all the matter of the criminality of aggression. Then from 1919 until 1944, they did consider aggression, uh, the possibility of uh, criminalizing aggression, but they objected it strongly. And this, no matter the fact that they greatly contributed to important treaties, which um, are and are still somehow fundamental when it comes to um, the historical overview of aggression, such as the Covenant of the League of Nations and the Pact of Paris, um, the so-called Kellogg-Briand Pact. Um, so they basically considered aggression um, something that related to the um, humankind's morale, uh, but not as a um, crime that is that was punishable under international law. Everything changed in, 19, in early 1945, and from January on that year until 1952, actually the US, and this is my third chapter, um, greatly contributed to the development of aggression as an international crime, setting up um, <laughs> and impacting on the international military tribunals um, um, final judgment, um, and those which also the Nuremberg, the Nuremberg trial uh, somehow uh, constituted a point of reference for the Tokyo trials and the subsequent American Nuremberg uh, trials, uh, which all consider aggression as um, an international crime. And uh, after uh, the a final judgment of the IMT was released, um, the US um, decided to push for the approval of important UN General Assembly resolution that reaffirmed and actually affirmed the so-called Nuremberg principles, somehow, according to many, contributing to the so-called crystallization of this principle under international customary law. Um, 
from 1952 and because of the Cold War and for a very long period, however, the U.S. started to argue against the, the possibility of even defining aggression as a crime. And uh, therefore, they somehow uh, linked the possibility or the, better saying the impossibility of uh, establishing a permanent interna- international criminal court with the impossibility of defining aggression. Um, and this stayed until um, the Rome Conference when the statute of the very first permanent uh, International Criminal Court was adopted in 1998 uh, and that entered into force in 2002. In Rome, the U.S. was among the few states voting against adoption of the statute and aggression was a key reason for this. And Later on, President uh, Clinton signed the statute, but this was uh, um, under Bush, so-called unsigned, and in any case, not even President Clinton had it, uh, ever dared to submit um, the um, treaty, the statute of the establishing the court, to the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate. So it was never ratified. And in fact, the U.S. is still not a state party to the ICC. Um, But basically, when in 2010, the Assembly of the States parties reached an agreement about the definition of the crime, which became an amendment to the treaty, then, of course, the U.S. position had to change slightly because this was evidence that it was indeed possible to define aggression. Um, But they started to argue against this definition, saying that this was not corresponded to any customary international law. So this should be considered only a treaty-based crime. And this is my last chapter of the book. And therefore, as as every other treaty, should not impact in any way on states that are not parties to the treaty, including the United States of America and its citizens in particular. Um, so yes, these are my uh, five chapters and uh, historical overview that I gave on the crime of aggression, the U.S. position on it. Thank you, Julian. You know, if you were to update your book to, to present day, um, what would you write about the Biden administration's relationship with the crime of aggression? Well, um, so as I said, there is um, there there are some elements that have never changed throughout the uh, different ad- U.S. administrations. So, for instance, um, these um, the current administration never actually uh, taken in consideration to join the ICC as a state party and therefore to ratify the treaty. And in this respect, this is a constant element of the U.S. practice towards the ICC. But it is true that um, under President Obama and now under President Biden, we can see um, definitely um, more open uh, collaboration with the court, uh, especially after um, the very low <laughs> um, peak touch under President Trump administration with the adoption um, of uh, sanctions against the ICC personnel, for instance, which were um, with the 
with Biden were removed. Um, and therefore, we don't have these sanctions, these um, conflicting attitudes anymore. We we see um, a, a, an open cooperation when it comes to Ukraine, but not only in this uh, respect, in many other um situations and cases, the U.S. publicly actually showed uh, their support and and therefore the attitude has changed. But um, when the crime of aggression, um, the ICC jurisdiction over the crime of aggression has been activated with um, the adoption of um, an Assembly of States Party's um, decision back in December 2017, uh, which activated the court from July 2018 and clarified that not only aggressions um, committed by non-state parties are excluded by the jurisdiction of the court, but also those aggressions committed by state parties that have not ratified the amendment are excluded as well. Um, and therefore, some... Um, ICC state parties that are very close um, military um, um, allies of the US, including France and the UK, for instance, um, may never be prosecuted for aggression if they do not ratify the amendment. From that moment on, basically, the aversion that until then the U.S. administration had uh, shown to, towards the, even the possibilities of activating the jurisdiction of the court um, stopped completely. And aggression is more or less absent in the public uh, discourse of the U.S. administration until nowadays, which is kind of, uh, I found it, if you think about it, uh, quite intriguing because, of course, especially with the Ukraine uh, situation, aggression is like the key word, you know, you always find a reference to aggression when it comes to Russian invasion. And this, if you look at the UN debates, for instance, within the context of the Security Council or in other bodies of the UN, including the General Assembly, the kind of resolution that have been adopted since the invasion, in February 2022, um, you will see that in in all these sectors and uh, circumstances, the U.S. representatives had no problems to refer to the invasion as an aggression. And as we know, they have supported and collaborated with the ICC for the investigation and collection of evidence for the crimes committed in Ukraine. But uh, they never mentioned the crime of aggression. And this is for sure because, as you know, the Russian administration, uh, the Russia, um, Russia has never ratified the, the ICC statute and, and, and they did not uh, ratify the amendment neither. So the ICC is not uh, allowed to prosecute um, any um, Russians for the commission of the crime of aggression. But uh, still, it is quite interesting that uh, the crime of aggression is then absent completely from this kind of uh, um, rhetoric, let's say. 
Yeah, thank I you. Do hope Julia. I answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. We'll, uh, there's there's things uh, sort of in the subtext there. I think that we'll we'll come back to um, in in some later questions. But uh, and before we we get to that, um, was there anything that you found especially surprising or interesting in your uh, analysis of these documents, texts, uh, political speeches, and so on? Yeah, one thing, uh, many actually, of course, but one thing that I'd love to actually mention here, uh, which I don't think it's uh, cited that often, no matter the importance of the Nuremberg president, is that um, back uh, to the, you know, the times of the London conference and later the Nuremberg uh, trials, um, the U.S. Uh, representative and then U.S. prosecutor Jackson submitted on behalf of the U.S. Um, a definition of the crime of aggression. And this definition was never adopted because the Soviets and French opposed it. But still, uh, of course, this somehow is telling of the U.S. position at that time. And what is interesting is that that definition, with um, the only exception of bombardment, um, really mirrored and is basically the same of um, the wording, using the same wording of um, Article 3 of uh, the U.N. General um, Assembly Resolution 3314, adopted in 1974 and defining aggression. Um, this, defin- this resolution is con- mentioned in the um, campaign amendment of the crime of aggression, in the definition of the crime, and the, uh, specifically Article 3 is copy-pasted, basically, in the definition adopted in Kampala. The mere fact that this definition um, was... Um, contained and somehow mentioning the uh, definition adopted in Kampala was one of the arguments uh, raised by the U.S. to argue against the the Kampala amendment, saying that because of this reference, we they they consider that the Kampala amendment is only a, a treaty-based definition, cannot be said to mirror customary international law. But actually, back in 1945, this was um, the same definition that they considered applicable um, for against the Nazis, basically. So at that time, they wouldn't argue against it. And what is more, uh, even more uh, interesting is that at that time, they did submit a definition that means they did consider possible to define aggression. And when the other states objected it, and therefore they established a tribunal um, where aggression was uh, the main the main crime because the the prosecution or the possibilities of prosecuting the other crimes that the Nuremberg Tribunal was uh, um, uh, competent on was subject to the their link to the uh, aggressive war. Uh, this um, the, the lack of a definition within the Nuremberg Charter did not um, consider, like, um, in, in any way hinder the U.S. and the other states from prosecuting the Nazis for this crime. 
and mm -hmm. and from constructing the whole Nuremberg uh, architecture based on the central role and key role played by the crimes against uh, peace and in particular the crime of aggression. Um, whereas uh, for a long time, as I mentioned, the US later on argued that because it was impossible to even define aggression, then we shouldn't have any prosecution and any courts at all in this respect. Um, so this is ca kind of an um, uh, interesting precedent, let's say. Um, and um, yeah, I, the other thing that I found it, and last thing that I found it very interesting, always in Nuremberg, was that at that time, um, Jackson used in, on many occasions the, the words war of aggression or acts of aggression as completely interchangeable. Whereas later on, um, and in particular from Rome to Kampala, um, the U.S. administration argued, um, and after, and actually after Kampala's war, that the, the, the customary precedent that states should have looked at before the Nuremberg president only involved the war of aggression. So um, a narrower, uh, somehow, uh, case uh, of, of illegal use of force and not acts of aggression, which was not the case according to Jackson as the US prosecutor and also uh, the same uh, tribunal did prosecute as, 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 and some and convicted some Nazis for the commission of some acts of aggression as well as together with the war of aggression so i also find it quite interesting and not many people usually highlight this mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of a um, contradictory practice if you consider what they've been arguing more recently and Julie, is that is that uh, is the distinction based on like some sort of temporal boundaries on limited action versus sustained action? What's the difference between an act and a war? Well, um, it, it is supposed for the war of aggression. It supposedly, you should reach a higher threshold of intensity of gravity, um, mm -hmm. and and therefore the example they usually make uh, is like. Under customary international law, it's the total war of the Nazis in Europe and uh, during the Second World War that could constitute a crime. But because the U.S. themselves at Nuremberg prefer to, they in, use interchangeably acts of aggression and war of aggression, I I would definitely argue that this distinction. Um, um, already at that time, and more specifically after the adoption of the UN Charter, it does not really make sense anymore because of uh, the customary nature, uh, or as the US would put it, the peremptory nature of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter and the prohibition to resort to force and not to resort to war uh, upon states in their international relations. Thank you. Um, so I'm a, you know, I, I do genocide studies. And so, um, you know, I, I wanted to see if you came across this, this at all in your research, uh, you know, back when the genocide convention was being negotiated, and then 
the understanding that the United States submitted to the Genocide Convention, it says, quote, that acts in the course of armed conflicts committed without the specific intent required by Article 2 are not sufficient to constitute genocide as, de- as defined by this convention. Did you come across this at all in your research? So the answer is no, I haven't come across this. And so I thank you for raising it. But um, uh, one of the reasons why I didn't include this in my book is that um, the understanding you're referring to um, basically um, mention acts that are committed during an armed conflict. And this, to me, referred more um, to uh, war, the so-called war crimes more than the crime of aggression. And mm-hmm. so um, this is why you won't find any reference to it in my in my book, because war crimes and, and crime of aggression are two different international crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the war of aggression... Um, basically, in its definition adopted in Kampala, um, make reference to the commission of an act of aggression, which um, in turn uh, refers to the so-called use ad bellum, so the way, the use of force uh, by states, essentially, uh, when they initiate an armed conflict and not necessarily during the armed conflict as such. Whereas single violation of what we call international humanitarian law nowadays, um, single or actually uh, not only single, but violation of international, serious violation of international humanitarian law may constitute, uh, of course, war crimes committed during a conflict, both of an international or a non-international nature. Thank you, Julie. I'm I'm doing some uh, research right now into international court of justice uh, cases that were brought under Article Nine of the Genocide Convention, which uh, you know gives the the court the uh, authority to hear um, disputes uh, concerning you know application fulfillment and so on of the Genocide Convention. And it's interesting, um, you know, the United both France and the United States uh, invoked that understanding um, that we just talked about uh, in the Yugoslavia versus the ten NATO members cases, um, and then interestingly, uh, you know, in the Ukraine Russia case, um, you know, Ukraine sought uh, provis- provisional measures against Russia in part because Russia is using claims of genocide being committed in you know parts of Ukraine. Um, as justification for use of military force. So it's really kind of interesting how, uh, you know, the ICJ actually, you know, or how the arguments were made that, uh, well, you know, NATO's actually trying to stop ethnic cleansing slash genocide slash, you know, egregious human rights violations. Uh, and therefore they were justified without Security Council approval um, to intervene in Serbia slash Kosovo. Uh, meanwhile, on the flip side, uh, you know, the ICJ found that Russia is not uh, justified, which of course it isn't. Um, but it was similar arguments actually made by both NATO and Russia based on their use of military force in uh, Serbia and Ukraine. And, uh, you know, my preliminary findings show, you know, the ICJ treated those um, uses of force uh, differently. Um, I don't know if you have any comments on that, but it's just something that I, I was thinking about. Because I'm the, doing this the, um, uh, we, we don't have a decision on the merits 
uh, about the pending case, you know, between Ukraine and Russia. So we will see what happens. Mm. It will be very interesting to see what happens, actually. Also because this case attracted the attention of a massive number of states who felt the need <laughs> uh, to, to, to submit their own uh, somehow... Um, opinion juris on, on this specific case. So this is also very interesting because it's a very good opportunity to collect um, states' views, uh, legal views on, on the subject matter. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, um, I, I would dare to say that they might actually, uh, I don't know, my my feeling is that the ICJ, I mean, it's a very good opportunity for the ICJ to clarify that in uh, unilateral humanitarian intervention, what we call the so-called humanita- unilateral humanitarian intervention, is illegal under the Charter and therefore under international law and and there can there can be no uh, ground legal ground to justify it um, the, saying like a customary ground or a treaty <laughs> um, justifying it as the genocide convention. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, that segues uh, neatly into you know the question I wanted to ask you, which is actually a series of questions about distinguishing aggression from other uses of force, such as self defense and intervention. And so the first one is, are the lines that distinguish aggression, self-defense, and humanitarian intervention blurred? And if so, how does this complicate identifying the crime of aggression? Um, so are you asking me about the, the, the implication for the crime of aggression or for aggression as such, first of all? Uh, for the crime of aggression, so you know, if states can point to, as the United States did with the Iraq, like preemptive self-defense, preventive self-defense, uh, you know, intervention. I mean, we look at you know, again, the, the NATO intervention in, in Yugoslavia, um, and so on. If are these, do the, you know, is it is it in some ways complicated to differentiate between? these uses of force? Um, No, this is what some scholars, and the US in particular, have argued when it came to the adoption of uh, um, the the definition of the crime in Kampala. And this is one of the reasons why they argue um, and the claim they had to they wanted to submit the the understanding the list of understanding they submitted um, in order to exclude the jurisdiction of the courts from, from the so-called gray areas of uh, international law and therefore the inter- the, the preemptive self-defense as as these have been interpreted especially when it comes to the War on terror, and therefore, basically, the last two um, more than two, twenty years now, actually, um, but also the so-called in, uh, unilateral humanitarian intervention. Um, but uh, as I argue in my book, um, there is no such a thing as a a, a real gray areas in this respect. The fact that the Kampala Amendment actually made reference to the UN Charter because the crime of aggression is defined as an act of aggression that constitutes a manifest violation of the UN Charter. Um, 
basically saved us from any uh, conflicting or you know troublesome in, interpretation in this respect because of course you will always have to look at the UN charter and the relevant provisions in this respect and therefore how the relevant provision has been interpreted by the most authoritative court in this respect the ICJ and also how states practice and opinion juries have contributed if ever if any to change um the correspondent norm of customer international law associated, basically mirroring the UN Charter. And um, yes, there um, basically the, there is no such a thing. There is the over time the um, prohibition to use force has not changed in, in the way the US have claimed, no matter the interpretation they've given and the practice <laughs> they have. Um, implemented in the last 20 years. And in fact, um, if you look at the practice of the ICJ, for instance, you will always find that it's on the state claiming self-defense, the duty to prove it. Um, So it's not enough to claim that you are using force on self-defense to make it legal. You will need later on to, to actually prove that this was a real self-defense, you know, a legal use of force based on Article 51 of the UN Charter or the corresponding customary international law in this respect. And there is no such a thing as a customary uh, modification of the relevant um, uh, law when it comes to the use of force uh, with an, an addition of a new exception for the humanitarian intervention. The only way uh, I will see that is that basically the UN Security Council practice has evolved over time because of the impact of the human rights law um, on international law and state practice and therefore now gross human rights violations, systematic human rights violations, the commission of the so-called atrocity crimes may justify um, an authorization to use of force by the Security Council and therefore may constitute the so-called threat to the peace uh, or a branch of the peace that will authorize, will basically constitute the grounds for uh, the UN Security Council to authorize the use of force. But there is no such a thing as a possibility for a state or a group of states or a regional organization to resort to war on without the UN Security Council authorization and without any self-defense claiming, basically. So I wouldn't uh, um, see a change in this respect. And the same thing, if you look at the ICJ practice, applies to the um, notion of armed attack that is, of course, central to the notion of self-defense, which under um, the, the charter itself doesn't say whether or not this should come from a state organs. And the customary law uh, mirroring um, and complementing Article 51, actually, it's, uh, it clearly uh, allows include armed attacks coming from non-state actors, uh, rebels, paramilitary groups, uh, think about the uh, Nicaragua case, but also, of course, terrorist uh, organizations and groups. Uh, 
Um, so it is now um, clear that an armed attack may come from a non-state actor, but in order for a state to use force on the grounds of self-defense against such an attack, within the territory of a, st- of a state, uh, the US or any other state is not at war with, According to the ICJ, you still need to prove the to, to meet the attribution requirement and therefore the so-called effective control test. So you will need to prove that those paramilitary terrorist groups that are acting within the context of the terri- of the territory of another independent state um, are acting um, as de facto organs of that state somehow. Um, otherwise, you will basically use force against the territorial integrity or political independence of a state that has nothing to do with the army that are coming from the terrorist uh, groups. So even in this respect, there is a difference in between the ICJ approach and what the US has been claiming under with the in the last 22 years, because the assumption that if a state is unwilling or unable, then the US can use force and launch drones, for instance, uh, uh, within the context of the, terri- of the territory of many states, they are not technically at war with, think about Pakistan, Somalia, and so on. Um, there's nothing uh, in international law or in the practice of the alternative courts and and states are actually uh, suggesting that there has been a a change in uh, in the law. So I wouldn't argue for any grey areas, uh, but the US has has done so. so. (laughs) I I was going to say that, uh, you know, the US understanding isn't even consistent with uh, you know the 2005 World Summit um, with responsibility to protect, where you know uses that same language of unable or unwilling, uh, you know, to, to prevent mass atrocities. Um, but it still says, you know, the Security Council um, essentially is the decider on whether um, you know use of force or use of coercive measures can be permitted. Indeed, indeed, indeed. That's what I'm trying. Yes, that's my argument as well. So there is nothing in the practice of other states generally or in the practice of the relevant organs that might suggest that there have been a change in the law or that that we might be in a transition period, let's say, towards a change in the war in this respect. Um, And... The fact that the, even President Obama wanted to intervene in Syria, for instance, but because they couldn't get the approval of um, prior authorization of the Security Council, they just decided to give up on these possibilities. And they yet use force in Syria, but as a collective self-defense after Iraq um individual and collective self-defense, but after the Iraqi government requested their intervention, then this is proof um, that even for the U.S. administration, this change is is, is still to happen, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, even if the Security Council does approve the use of force, is is it possible... 
that an ex, you know, if a state or regional organization exceeds the mandate that's been uh, provided or authorized, do you think it's possible for something to evolve from one thing to another? I know this is probably another gray area question, but you know, thinking in particular about the intervention in, in Libya, um, where you know Russia, China, India, Brazil, and Germany all expressed reservations um, about the um, you know resolution 1973 that authorized the use of force now all they all abstained rather than vetoing in the in the case of the the permanent members china and russia so they didn't stand in the way um, but they raised concerns about the mandate and how it would be enforced and the rules of engagement and so on um and then you know hypothetically you know if nato did exceed what was authorized can that transition from one thing to another I think it could, but it's, and this is a problem related to the fact that the Security Council resolution are always the result of a political compromise. So the kind of wording they they use uh, would never, I think, <laughs> realistically provide for a clear borders and limitations when it comes to jurisdictions and mandates and uh, and so on and so forth so and um, um, and therefore this might you know give the way to abuses um, for instance where they do not set a time limit in the authorization of the use of force. Think about, you know, the, the very weak argument raised actually uh, by the US and the UK in, on the occasion of the second war in Iraq, saying, well, okay, we don't have a um, prior approval of the UN Security Council, but we are acting still <laughs> thanks to the resolution uh, that authorized the use of force back in the 1990s, you know, because there's no such a thing. So um, this is part of the, you know, I am, uh, I teach international organization and I'm a big fan of the UN, no matter what, you know, no matter the fact that I'm, I can see the shortcomings um, that are not, necessary intrinsic to the organization or to a particular organization or to the specifically to the UN but I must admit they are some, somehow reflective of uh, the, the the problems we face uh, politically speaking worldwide in terms of balance of powers you know and double standards at times um and yeah, yes, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I have a, a few more questions for you, and they all kind of tie back to uh, the end of your book. Um, you've mentioned Robert Jackson during our conversation so far, and at the end of the book, uh, you take from his opening statement at the International Military Tribunal the following, quote, we must never forget that the record on which we judge these defendants today is the record on which history will judge us tomorrow. And so I have a few related questions and, you know, I have a, I have a sort of stake in this in a way, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a critic of, of U.S. foreign policy, broadly speaking, especially its use of force. And um, I just wonder, it's, it seems like from the United States' own perspective and, the, you know, the perspective of its officials, 
that the United States has never committed the crime of aggression. And so in a imaginary world where you, uh, or maybe you did have a chance to talk to, to some U.S. officials, but if you ask them, has the U.S. ever committed the crime of ag- aggression, what do you think they would say? Of course they would reply they never committed aggression. But to be honest with you, no matter how critical I might be myself against the U.S. administration, I believe that this would apply to any administration worldwide. I mean, even Putin today, uh, somehow, for the war in Ukraine, he, he, he struggles and he has struggled to find many or justification, you know, the, the nazification argument, the uh, humanitarian intervention argument, the self-defense argument, and sometimes mixing them up all together. <laughs> but, I mean, every nobody will claim, yes, I'm committing aggression and I don't care. <laughs> So they would all, and this actually, it's a very good point to prove that aggression is indeed a crime under international law. Because it, it, if it was um, still controversial in this respect, then you will find some state practice of some random administration, uh, sometimes in history, claiming, yes, I'm, I'm committing aggression and I don't see any problem with that, you know. <laughs> so the fact that um, U.S. officials may hypothetically answer that they had never committed aggression is part of the game, I guess. Um, but... Um, Yes, there there are cases which are, by the way, if you look at the UN debate in the last year or so, used very smartly by the opponents of the US, and in particular the Russians nowadays, um, as a precedent saying, well, well, we are, and basically the arguments raised, they sound very much as the arguments used by the US over in the last 20 years uh, when it comes to preemptive self defense in, the, in their war on terror, when it comes to the um, Kosovo um, and the president of Kosovo. Um, so the, they are not uh, making up new legal grounds to justify the intervention. They are just saying, claiming that they are the victims of a double standards because when it was for, you know, the wars uh, waged by uh, the US and its allies, like Iraq, um, nobody nobody would would actually argue in favor of the establishment of an ad hoc tribunals uh, or strongly in favor because there were some worldwide a lot of criticism and so on and so forth but it wasn't a real possibility to to, to create an ad hoc tribunals to try an, an incumbent head of state for the crime of aggression um but uh, yeah, these are the same precedents, basically the same arguments raised uh, by the U.S. administration at the end of the day. So the problem with the, the current invasion of Ukraine is that this came after a few violations of the charter by other permanent members. Uh, but I'm also positive in this respect because uh, this might well be the case uh, that El Paso realize that it's really 
counterproductive to have the five permanent members um, blatantly violating the the charter because then, of course, this will serve uh, as a justification for others to do the same and therefore defeat the, the object and purposes of the UN as such. At the risk of belaboring the point, um, just returning to the you know to the Jackson quote, uh, do you th- do you think there will be a time when the U.S. will be judged uh, for its own use of force in ways that similar to how Russia and other more authoritarian type states have been judged? I think that um, exactly as Russians cannot be uh, tried before the ICC. It might well be the case that U.S. Um, incumbent head of state will never be tried before an international court for the crime of aggression specifically. Um, but um, as I argue in my book, actually, um, the very U.S. practice um against the adoption of the Kampala Amendment and against its ratifications and against the activation of the court's jurisdiction in this respect proves that no matter the fact that they are arguing that this is only a treaty-based definition that cannot have any impact on them because they are not parties to the treaty in itself, um, they are actually concerned about it. And this The the reason behind it is that if many states ratify the stated, the amendment to the stated, um, this can be proof uh, of, um, can be evidence of the fact that the Kampala definition uh, either uh, codified at the time of its adoption, um, corresponding customary international law, or because of the broad ratification of it, has crystallized um, corresponding norm of customary international law. So if we then can prove that this goes beyond the treaty, but it's something that is uh, applicable uh, against and towards everyone, then, of course, this might well constitute a ground, a point of reference for national jurisdiction that wants to incorporate the crime of aggression in their national uh, penal codes, for instance, or uh, initiate national uh, prosecutions against former head of states, even if U.S. citizens. Um, so, of course, the, the problems that we face with Putin is that he's still an incumbent head of states, but if he, one day he will never, he, he's not in, in power anymore, then the immunities will not apply, and national jurisdiction may try him. And the same thing will apply with the future former US president. And, and the, also, there might be worldwide national jurisdiction that exercise universal jurisdiction. And my want, if we can consider the crime of aggression, international crimes, they might well uh, be willing to initiate prosecutions about the crime of aggression against U.S. Uh, officials, basically. So the Kampala Amendment, can, of course, has the potential of going well beyond um, the treaty um, uh, 
limitation because you might have read something about it, but with the Kampala, um, uh, the adoption of the Kampala Amendment, states were at first very, very, the states and actually activists were very excited because this came after like 70 years of negotiation or something like this. And people would never bet that we would never have, um, you know, a crime of aggression actually defined um, and that an international permanent court actually um, having jurisdiction about it. But then the way they phrase the definition itself and the amendment already in Kampala and then in 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 2017, the, the the way the Assembly of States parties worded the decision to activate the jurisdiction basically limited significantly the jurisdiction of the courts over aggression, which uh, at the moment exclude any uh, acts committed by non-state parties or by states parties that have not ratified it. Um, and the, 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 of course, the, these shortcomings um, have now been highlighted enormously when the court and the, the world faced the impossibility of the court to try um, the Russians for aggression. Uh, so there are proposals for amendments, new amendments of the amendment, basically. But um, my point is that in, no matter the shortcomings of the, the treaty based, the, the, the amendment in itself, nothing prevents single individual states or regional organizations, regional courts to use the Kampala amendment as a point of reference to initiate their national or regional prosecutions in this respect. So, yeah, it might be well the case that sooner or later the words of Jackson become reality. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for ending us on an optimistic note, Julia. I I learned so much from your book uh, and from our conversation. Like I said, I have a special interest in in the topic. So uh, thank you and and thank you for your time. Uh, But, you know, before I let you go, uh, can you tell us if there's anything that you're currently working on that we should keep our eyes out for? (laughs) Um, No, I'm I'm currently working on uh, actually updating um, my book. And so I've I've been collecting, you know, materials about the Biden administration and the ICC and the crime of aggression, of course. Um, But uh, it's kind of an interesting time, you know, and therefore I was quite intrigued by all this proposal on how to circumvent the veto before the UN Security Council, how to circumvent the shortcomings of the ICC. Um, I must say, um, and uh, I am um, uh, an optimistic no matter what, <laughs> dramatically. <laughs> so uh, what I would take out of, uh, of what of the recent development, it's not the end of the UN Charter, as many have cried. It's not the end of, you know, international law. On the contrary, after a period in which, you know, with Trump, with Brexit, we had states, uh, and also with withdrawals from, uh, coming from, you know, some states parting from the ICC, for instance, um, or lack of cooperation when it came to the 
warrant of arrest issued by the ICC. We are now facing a time where uh, Ukraine in itself as the victim um, relied enormously on the support of international of the international community, the international organizations, and brought many cases before different courts. Um, and the, the, the response of all the other states, um, including the US somehow, it's, it's been very positive towards the role played by uh, international courts, tribunals and organizations. So, um, and, and the centrality uh, of the UN Charter in, in, in this respect. So I think this is a very good opportunity basically to remind us of the importance of um, um, cooperation and the role played by international courts and tribunals and, and the rule of law at the international level. Thanks again, Julian. I'll, uh, I'll keep my eye out for, uh, it sounds like, a, uh, a new edition or updated edition of, of the book. And uh, thanks again. And um, you know, I wish you all the best and, and take care. Thanks, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Hope to meet you in person soon. <laughs> That's right. Sometime I'll make it to Europe. All right. <laughs> so take care and we'll, we'll talk again soon. Bye.